This is They Create Worlds, episode 201, Advanced Balls and Paddles. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co host, Alex. Hello. It's 2024. I have my drink. Alex has his drink. We are celebrating the new year with you right now. That's right. Happy New Year, except in a lot of the our listener base, this comes out on December 31st because it's Greenwich Mean Time. That's not important. They're going to celebrate. They have celebrated. They are in the process <laughs> of celebrating. Who knows? They're probably just too busy celebrating and just downloaded this thing automatically, and then they're listening to it after the fact. That's probably true. That's right. So we welcome you back after our long hiatus of doing three episodes back to back to back to back, because we are masochists. That's right. And for once, you have no idea what we're talking about, even if you are a regular listener. We don't? Well, they don't. Because we don't tell them at the end of the live stream, because I do not want to think up a new topic at the end of a live stream. Oh, that's true. Because we're drinking and celebrating the new year, we're going to be playing with balls and paddles again. Because who doesn't love a little bit of drinky pong? That's right. We are going to take a comprehensive look at the evolution of the ball and paddle game in the 1970s and 1980s. I know we've done pong. I know we've done the cocktail market. We're not bringing back, I'm sorry to say, Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium. What we haven't done is really gone beyond that to show how we moved beyond the simple Pong, Ball, and Paddle games into the slightly more complex Ball and Paddle games. We did do a chapter reading of my chapter on Breakout, but the chapter readings, that's not our standard format, and there, I have much more to say than I could just fit in the uh, They Create Worlds books. So. We're going to take a comprehensive look at how this entire thing went from Pong, which we won't dwell on, all the way up to Arkanoid. Okay, so we get to play all the ball and paddle games, possibly even pinball. Little bit, little bit. One of my favorite games on the NES was one of the pinball games where it became Arkanoid. Yes. Who do we blame at the start? We are past the Pong craze of dedicated consoles, or are we starting in the middle of that nightmare? Oh, we're starting way before that, Jeffrey. We're starting at the very beginning. We're starting at the beginning of humanity, Jeffrey. We're going back to the monolith in 2001. The great holy dot of Azeroth? <laughs> sure. No, so before we talk about ball and paddle games specifically, I just want to take a moment, or, you know, 20 moments, because this is They Create Worlds, to talk about just balls and things that hit them in general. Now, not to do an entire history of that. We're not going to talk about all the sports humanity's come up with. But just very broadly, most of the games from the very beginning of time that humans have come up with have involved either throwing objects or hitting objects or running after objects. As apex predators, that's how we hunted down our prey, was we would run them down and hit them or throw things at them or 
cause them to have a heart attack because we could uh, dispense heat more efficiently than they could. And so they would have eventually dropped dead of exhaustion and we'd still keep going. Hooray for sweat glands, Jeffrey. Yay, sweating. There's always been a fascination in humanity about hitting balls with sticks, bats, clubs, rackets, etc. Paddles. Paddles. Absolutely. It's just in our nature and it's in it's in our our psyche to be we we like calculating the distance between ourselves and objects and the vector of objects relative to ourselves because that is that is how we hunted was by calculating how far away something was and running to go get it. There's an inherent fascination to watching a ball bounce around. I think it's fair to say for humans. Heck, just think of how much of our brains are dedicated to just calculating where our hands need to be if you're just playing catch with you and a friend. Mm -hmm. You're throwing the ball. Okay, I have to put this much energy into it so that it goes into this much of an arc with this much of a spin so that it lands in a rough location of where the other person can catch it. The other person goes, I have to instantly look, analyze, and know where to put my hand to catch this ball that's being sent by them in some unknown manner. Exactly. Balls fascinate us as humans. Bouncing balls fascinate us as humans. And the great thing is, a bouncing ball is really not very graphically intensive at all, at its base level. I mean, you can make it graphically intense if you want. You can make a ball out of two million polygons if that's what floats your boat, but you don't have to. A little dot is a pretty good abstract representation of a ball. It could even be a square dot. I was going to say, making circular dots can be a little harder, but just making a dot that vaguely resembles a ball is very easy, and the physics calculations are not that complex, all things considered, just for a bounce. Now, obviously, again, you can make the physics as complicated as you want. You can add spin rate, and you can add ambient weather conditions, you can add temperature, altitude. It's not that you can't make them complicated. At its very core level, the basic physics are not that hard and not that computationally intensive. It's no surprise when you combine the fascination and the simplicity together that almost all of the early real-time computer experiments and almost all of the very early real-time computer games were based around balls. Oh, look, says the computer scientist. My computer has a ball. Why don't you go bounce it? That's a very good computer. You keep at it until you figure out the whole (laughs) bouncing thing. Exactly. You know, even very briefly before we get to Pong games, uh, you know, we've we've covered early real-time computer games before. So again, I'm not going to belabor this part of the story, but I do want to kind of provide a little bit of this broad sweep. The very first real-time computer game that we know about, which also happens to be the very first real-time demo that we know about, is the bouncing ball on the Whirlwind computer, which was the very first real-time computer. As a way to demonstrate this amazing feat that it could update its display in real-time, something that couldn't be done before, One Oliver Aberth, a young student working on the project, created a bouncing ball program where the ball would enter from the top of the screen, it would fall to the bottom and bounce, and it would continue to 
bounce around until it lost so much momentum that it could bounce no more. That was created in 1952. So effectively, the government spent a lot of money to create everyone's favorite screensaver. Yes, exactly. And of course, bouncing balls, you know, when the Commodore Amiga was first debuted at CES, the bouncing ball demo was the thing that they made that was the talk of the show. As you said, screensavers adopted this as well. How well you could bounce a ball became a standard benchmark for real-time computers and how fast they could do. Because, you know, like I said, you can make it as elaborate as you want. So obviously the Whirlwind doesn't have that much computing power, so it's a pretty simple bouncing ball. The Amiga has a more complex bouncing ball with also advanced sound effects and all of this other stuff, because you can make this as complicated as you want. That's the great thing about balls. They can be simple or complicated. But back in 1952, that was the very first computer demo. So in 1951, said 1952 a moment ago, but I meant 1951, that was the first known real-time demo. We're not sure, but perhaps because of a bug where the ball would eventually bounce under the plane of the surface or something to that effect, they added a hole. So that when the ball finally lost enough momentum that it wasn't bouncing anymore, it would fall into the hole and disappear, and that would be the end of the demo. So in 1952, this is why I had said 1952 earlier, this was turned essentially into a game because they made it interactive in the sense that you didn't control the ball during the game, but you could adjust the frequency of the bounces before you launched the ball. And the students and programmers that were using this program made it into a game, essentially almost like a game of basketball, so to speak, though the hole is on the floor, not suspended from the ceiling of the space on the monitor, where they would try to perfectly adjust it so that it would fall straight into the hole. It became a game, not something you would ever sell, but that's what they did. So a ball game. When Michigan, the University of Michigan, created a real-time computer that was meant for things like air traffic control, they wanted to demonstrate how their system could track objects and update the movement of up to, like, I think 16 or something objects in real time. So what did they do? They created a pool game. Because that's something that would draw people in, being a game. And in pool, you have a lot of balls bouncing around everywhere. And so it's a great way to show how it's able to track and update objects. When Willie Higginbotham, in 1958, decided that the visitors' days at the Brookhaven National Laboratory were perhaps a little boring, and the high school students that they had coming in might appreciate something a little fun at the end of it, he created... A tennis game, which we now call Tennis for Two. He didn't name it that, but uh, historians have named it that since. Side view of a tennis court, not like the Pong games that would come later, with a net. No paddles on the screen, just the arc of the ball bouncing back and forth, and you had a dial and a button that you would use to control your angle and then press to return the ball back and forth. Again, a ball game, because the computer that he was using, an analog computer, had a program already built in that could track the flight of a ball. So he used that to create a tennis game. This fascination wasn't just in the computer realm, because there's actually a long history of this stuff in arcades as well in the coin-operated games industry. Now, in coin-op, because it really wasn't all of that feasible 
to uh, have a game where a ball actually has to bounce over a net, like in tennis or table tennis. In the arcade, this tended to focus on hockey games instead. And I don't mean the elaborate bubble hockey games that you see in arcades today, where you have two full sides of players and you're playing a hockey game. But what they had was something much more similar to, and what I imagine in part inspired, Pong. And that's a game where you each have a hockey player, a single hockey player, that you control on either side of this big table. You have like a knob or something that allows you to flip around your hockey player with the stick sticking out, just, you know, in that sense, similar to the later, more complex hockey games. You would bat a puck or a ball. Even though they're hockey games, they often used balls instead of pucks because they rolled better and wouldn't get stuck on the table. You would bat it back and forth and try to get it in the other person's goal to score a point. I have not researched the electromechanical coin-op industry as heavily as I have researched the video game industry. I've done a lot of work, but nowhere near the depth, so I can't say definitively what the absolute first example of this is. But the earliest example I have come across dates all the way back to 1938. The company International Mutoscope in that year released a game called Hockey. Obviously, there were other sports games using balls even before that. In the 1920s, there were soccer games, and there were football games, and there were golf games, similar ideas. But the reason I focus on this hockey concept is this game is basically Pong in its most basic form. It's not exactly the same because, you know, your player is just there in the goal. You don't move him like back and forth like you move the paddle and pong. You just take a spin with him. But it's a very similar idea in that you each have your own zone that you have to protect. You have an object you're batting back and forth between, and if it gets by you into the goal, the other player scores a point. This style of game was very popular throughout the 1930s and the 1940s and even beyond. A Chicago Coin, a company that we've talked about several times in various contexts, was the one that refreshed this the most often. They had a very popular one, 1947-48, called Goalie. And that's spelled weird. It's spelled uh, G-O-A-L-E-E. I say that for Jeffrey's benefit, (laughs) since he's going to have to find all of this stuff for the show notes. That was highly, highly successful. One of the most popular uh, coin-op pieces post between the post-war period and the, and the rise of the audiovisual games in the late uh, 1960s. They continually refreshed this concept, the same basic idea, but just slight tweaks on it. Every few years, they'd release a new model. And in fact, in early 1972, they released a new version of the same basic game called Slapshot Hockey. Now, you'll find videos of that one online too, Jeffrey, and those videos on YouTube, because I've looked some of this stuff too, will say 1969 on them. That is lies. Anyone that goes into our show notes to watch that footage, that is lies. I have the announcement in Cashbox for Slapshot Hockey, and it was announced as brand new in 1972. And just to be safe, because the whole run of it is keyword searchable on a couple of sites online, I ran searches for 69 and 70 just in case the version from 72 was an updated model and then one had been released previously, and it had not. So the internet lies. Never forget that. So if you take one thing away from our show notes... Right. That's not a very big thing, but it is one thing you could take away from it. Absolutely. 
the reason I find that interesting is it came out in like April of 1972. This is right when Nolan Bushnell is about to break away from Nutting Associates and create Atari with Ted Dabney. The first game they proposed doing to Bally, the first video game, was a hockey game, a hockey video game. I think it was inspired. I don't know this because Nolan Bushnell doesn't even have any recollection Nolan Bushnell has always said, and and I know sometimes he takes liberties with the truth, but in this case, I don't think that was his purpose. I think he just literally forgot. He has always said that the first game that they were going to propose to Bally was a driving game. From the court cases, we actually have a letter that was entered as evidence that Nolan Bushnell sent to Bally in July of 1972, the letters dated, telling them about the game that he wants to make, and it is a hockey game. So we know that what he actually proposed, he might have been thinking about doing a driving game too, but what he actually proposed to Bally, as we talked about in our Pong episode, was a hockey game. I think it must have been, even though I have no way of knowing because he has no memory of it, it must have been inspired by these existing coin-operated hockey games that operate in a very similar way. Now, at this point, our listeners might also be thinking to themselves, well, What about air hockey? That's a fair point. However, air hockey did not appear until 1973. That's when air hockey first demonstrated and then later in the year launched. The retrospectives on that make it clear that until they announced it to the world, they kept their work on it completely and utterly secret. They didn't give any advanced previews or showings to anybody before they announced it to the world. They were working on developing air hockey when Bushnell and company were proposing a hockey game, but no one had seen it yet, so it was not influenced by that. I think it must have been influenced by this. But then, of course, they had Al Alcorn as a test project do the table tennis game, like the one that the Magnavox Odyssey had, as a test project. Again, in my opinion, they probably had him do that because they were expecting to then turn that prototype into the more complex hockey game. Again, can't really confirm that because since Nolan doesn't remember any of this, I think legitimately does not remember any of this, for our uh, Smithsonian interview with him, we did present him with that document and ask him about it, and he just had no recollection of that whatsoever. So again, I can't prove it, but I assume that he had him do the Odyssey-style table tennis game as a warm-up specifically to do the hockey game. But of course, then Pong ended up being so fun that they were like, we don't need to get any more complicated than this. We can stop right here. As we can see, there's a continuum all across both computer entertainment and coin-operated entertainment and just human entertainment. Games like cricket and baseball and tennis and table tennis. The ball and the object to whack the ball with just play such a role, and it goes back, as I said, to our evolution as a species and the way we hunted down our prey. So we've talked about the Pong boom. I don't want to go into detail on that again, and we don't have to go into detail on the creation of Pong again. Or on Odyssey Table Tennis, which of course predated Pong, because we also did an Odyssey episode. So there's no reason to go in depth on that. The one thing I will say is the way both of these came about, I mean, how did Odyssey Table Tennis come about? Ralph Baer wanted to create an interactive television game. 
The hardware had to be super cheap because this was going to be a consumer product, not a coin-op product like Pong. Therefore, the hardware he created could only create dots and a line. That was it. So he figured out a way to have two dots that each player could manipulate. Then Bill Rush was brought onto the project, one of his co-workers, and then he said, what if we did a third dot and had that controlled by the machine, then it could be a ball, and then we could have the spots bat it back and forth. That's how they ended up with their table tennis game, which also had a tennis variant and a hockey variant using different overlays. So again, it comes back to this idea that the most basic things that they could generate on a television for a reasonable cost were dots. Even though these were just square pieces of light, that's enough to suspend disbelief in a very abstract way and picture a ball being batted back and forth. And because we love following the path of a ball and intercepting a ball in flight, as I said, just innately as humans— Despite its simplicity, that is immediately fascinating. I mean, Ralph Baer himself said that they didn't really have any interesting game ideas, nothing interesting enough to sell a system around, until Bill Rush suggested that third machine-controlled dot. And that just suddenly made the system exciting. It's just there's something deep down innately exciting about an object moving around fast that you have to track. It's why Pong became a huge hit. It's why air hockey became a huge hit in the exact same year Pong did, in the same year that Pong and its clones were selling 70,000 units, and that's across, you know, like half a dozen different companies. Brunswick was selling 33,000 units of air hockey. And, you know, that was a single company. That's more air hockeys than any single company made of Pongs. There were only so many Pongs because so many companies were making it. So you had two games in 1973 in the arcade with the idea of batting an object back and forth, one electromechanical in air hockey, one video game in Pong, that were immediate hits because there was just something intoxicating about that. Obviously, pinball, to an extent, has some of the same thing going on as well. Once the flippers were added in 1947, that is, because you're following that ball around, pinging off of all of these targets, waiting for that moment when you get to target it perfectly with a flipper shot to send it to the part of the table you want to go to next to keep scoring. It's that same fascination. Or you can just be a small child watching your father play pinball and just be fascinated as the ball goes around the pinball play set and makes all of the dingy noises. Yes, exactly. It's not a surprise, then, that video games would first attain their popularity through this very, very simple ball-and-paddle game that is Pong. It was kind of necessary, because even in the arcade where you could charge more than you could for a Magnavox Odyssey, there was still a limit to how much you could do with the technology. As we've talked about many times before, it's pre-microprocessor. These games are being made with TTL, transistor-to-transistor logic, hardware. They're using state machines, they're using slip counters, they're using all of this kind of stuff. 
It's even before they're using chips of any kind in the games, because even putting ROM memory chips or shift registers into these machines is incredibly expensive. So they're using diodes for objects that they're representing on the screen, not ROM chips. When he was making Pong, Al Alcorn for the score originally used a shift register to do the score, but then he realized that that shift register cost $5, and he could use TTL hardware to achieve the same effect with $3 worth of parts. It was a little more work on his part, but it was a huge money saver. A $2 difference on a machine like that, where you are literally counting every penny because you're mass-producing them, Atari made 8,000 Pong machines, so you multiply $2 by 8,000, you're starting to get up there. That's a $16,000 extra expense. (laughs) Exactly. And, And these add up because, you know, that's not your only expense. They had very primitive hardware by necessity to keep the cost down. So again, just a simple ball moving around the screen with something resembling real physics is just captivating to us in the same way that monsters love lava lamps. Bonus points if you grew up in the 90s and get that reference. I'd be too scared. (laughs) So it's just a match made in heaven. Pong is a big hit. Pong has the imitators. Pong has the variants. Pong goes into the cocktail market and goes into lounges and hotels. We've done that. Listen to those episodes. But then there's a very real question of what do we do next, because the coin-op industry is very fad-driven and is very good at burning out fads very fast. I mean, pinball obviously endured, but there were so many products in the history of coin-op that were big for a second, then everyone jumped on the bandwagon and kept making the same thing, and then it just burned itself out. There were two kinds of companies that were making ball and paddle games in this early time, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but just to put the next part in context, there were the engineering firms that understood how this stuff actually worked. The companies that had worked with solid-state technology, TTL hardware, interfaces between computer hardware and televisions or monitors, etc., Then there were the traditional coin-op companies that had, to this point, pretty much done all of their work in electromechanical technology, steppers, relays, contacts, wires, running between everything, who didn't really understand how this technology worked. So to keep ahead of all of the cloning, it was necessary for the companies that actually had some idea of what they were doing with this technology— to innovate it and grow the ball and paddle genre in new directions to try to stay ahead and keep people interested. Of course, the first manifestation of this, which again we talked in our Pong episode, was when Allied Leisure, which knew nothing about electronics itself, but contracted with a firm called Universal Research Laboratories up in Chicago, URL, that did understand how solid-state technology worked, very quickly released a four-player version of Pong where you have two players on each side batting the ball back and forth. That was kind of the first obvious upgrade. Then the company Ramtech, which again was a high-end graphics display company, decided, well, we can create like a hockey variation on this. And they made a hockey game. They really understood the technology because they were in the high-end graphics display market. They entered video games because they were having trouble raising money to do their high-end graphical stuff. 
which was very cutting edge, but only had limited demand. The CFO of the company was actually a co-owner of the bar where Atari tested Pong, Andy Caps. So they saw the game very quickly because that was a regular hangout of theirs. And the owner, Charles Ewan, uh, decided, hey, we can make these games too to raise some money. So they created a hockey variant where you're defending a goal. So you have an attacker and a goalkeeper. You're trying to knock the ball into the opponent's goal. So there's a few different things going on here to try to provide variations that vaguely resemble other sports. There will also be a volleyball version where the paddle is moving along the base, and when it makes contact, instead of launching it towards the other side of the screen, it launches it in a parabolic arc to simulate volleyball. Taito does a basketball game we talked about in our episode on Tomoyori Nishikado where the paddles move up and down, they move vertically, and again, when it hits it, it bounces off at a certain angle as you try to get into a basket. So that was the first attempt to move beyond, is let's simulate other sports. But then it starts to get more interesting when they move away from sports entirely and start to think about what other kinds of things can we do with these simple mechanics besides simulating missing a tennis ball or scoring a hockey goal or making a basket. So that's where we really want to focus most of our attention now, because this is the stuff that we may have mentioned here and there in passing as we talked about the history of this or that person or this or that company, but we haven't really looked at in a more comprehensive way. Now we'll turn our attention to the games that were released kind of between 1973 and 1976 that were ball and paddle games, but took this basic genre video game in slightly different directions. The first game that really did this is one that, no surprise, came from Atari, and that was a game called Elimination, released in the fall of 1973. Now I say it came from Atari. But the label on the product was actually Key Games. We've talked about Atari and Key Games, the secret subsidiary that Atari set up to breach exclusivity amongst distributors and operators. So we won't go into that here. We've talked about Atari a lot. Steve Bristow, who was the number two engineer at Atari, became the chief engineer at the new Key Games secret subsidiary. So it was released through Key Games, but really it's an Atari product. Atari released its own version of it early the next year as Quadrapong, but the original version was Elimination. So the interesting thing about this game is that instead of a traditional, we're trying to score points either by getting a ball into a basket or into a goal or by causing the other player to miss it, what we're doing instead, instead of scoring points, is we are eliminating, hence the name, players from competition. It's still kind of like scoring a goal, but the difference is you're not winning points. Your opponents are losing points. Pretty much. I'm looking at a little bit of a gameplay here. You have about four to five points that you have on your side, a little dot. As the gameplay progresses, every time you miss blocking a goal, your points go down. And then once your side, and you're one of four sides, runs out of points, 
you're eliminated from the game and your side just becomes a wall that bounces everything. Exactly. What I have right now, you just have the left quadrant and the north quadrant fighting it out, trying to get rid of each other, but the south and east quadrant are both eliminated. That just adds a different level of gameplay. Just try to think, I have to effectively get this ball going in wrong at more or less a 45-degree angle to myself in order to win. Exactly. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, contends that the other interesting thing about elimination here is that this is kind of the beginning of lives in video games. The early Pong games, you know, you're scoring points, and yes, you lose when your opponent scores a certain number of points, but you're in the game all the way up until the end, all the way until somebody reaches the number of points that the game is programmed to recognize as the winner. But in this case, you're having something taken away from you. You're having a number taken away from you every time you miss. And then at the end, you are out of the game. And the game doesn't end just because one player is eliminated. If you have multiple people playing, the game continues, even absent you. So in a way, it's kind of like lives. I can certainly see that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a valid observation. I think Ethan maybe finds it a little more significant here than I do, and that's fine. There should be disagreement in research and scholarship, because otherwise, what's the point? Because after all, pinball had already been doing this for years. I mean, I think as lives became more common in video games, it was really because they were taking their cue from pinball, where you only got a certain number of balls. And Elimination, for all I know, was taking its cue from pinball in that regard as well. It may be a little bit of a milestone, but I don't know how much, you know, weight to put on that. But I just wanted to throw that out there, and all all credit to Ethan, who's the one who's been thinking about this, not me. So that was kind of the first thing that really moved away and took ball and battle gameplay in a different direction. Atari was trying desperately to get out of ball and paddle games. They were the one company that really was trying to push forward. So they didn't do a lot of additional ball and paddle game kind of stuff. The other company that was really pushing forward the ball and paddle genre, such as it was, in new directions was the company Ramtech that I briefly mentioned earlier. Don't have a lot of information on the history of Ramtech. As I said, it was a high-end graphics terminal company. That was their main line of business. It was founded by an individual by the name of Charles McEwen and some of his co-workers from a company called Data Disk Corporation. McEwen had received his electronics training in the Army. He was in the Army from 1954 to 1956 and then became a field engineer for Philco in their uh, California facility, their semiconductor company. Then he went and worked in New Hampshire for a while, and then came to Datadisk in the Valley. I don't know a lot. Unfortunately, he's passed a lot of even his background, I know, sadly, from his obituary, not from any other place. Never been comprehensively interviewed on this stuff. I don't know how he discovered advanced graphics while he was at Datadisk, but he really believed that high-end monitors and scanning equipment would absolutely revolutionize the medical industry. He wanted to do that work at Datadisk. He wanted to explore it. And when they said no, he said, okay, then goodbye. So he founded his own company, Ramtech, to do this. Their products were used in some of the earliest CAT scanners in the medical field. 
also used in the uh, Viking 2 program at NASA. Satellite launched off into space to take the pretty pictures. Like I said, because this stuff was so high-end and so cutting-edge, there weren't a lot of takers for this technology yet, and it was very expensive to work in. So the company was having real trouble getting the money it needed to stay afloat. As I said, Andy Capps, where Pong was tested before wide release in 1972, was a regular hangout for the Ramtech engineers because they were also in Sunnyvale, just as Atari was, and the CFO owned a stake in the bar. So it was one of their main hangouts for their engineers. The Ramtech people were amongst the very first people to see Pong. They were like, oh, this looks interesting. And you see, this very first prototype of Pong was actually placed on top of a barrel. It didn't stand on the floor. The prototype still exists. It wasn't a floor model. It was just a smaller uh, tabletop model. So it was sitting on top of a barrel. And one of the Ramtech people, a guy by the name of Pete Kaufman, who we're going to hear more about later, he comes over and looks at it, but also tries to move it. The reason for that is he wants to see how heavy it is, because that would give him an indication of how much money it was making, how many quarters it was taking in. He found the thing was very heavy. He figured, because he knows this technology stuff, you know, he knows the technology itself isn't that heavy. He figures if it's that heavy, that's because it has a lot of coins in it. So the Ramtech people are on to this Pong thing very early. As I said previously, McEwen then decided, well, this stuff is a cinch for us because the electronics we make in our regular business are way more complex than this. So we can throw together our version of this and put it out there and make some money and fund our other business, our core business, our most important business by selling these things. So that's how he saw the business. He saw it as a side business. But because the games were so popular in the beginning— They kind of became the tail wagging the dog for a while. Now, that would change by the late 70s. But in the early 70s, the video games became the tail wagging the dog. They were taking in more money than the core business at Ramtech. So they naturally decided to keep this going. And because they were so good with the technology and had really good solid-state engineers there, they were actually able to start innovating a little bit on these ball-and-paddle games. They did the hockey game, like I said. They did a few of these kind of variants. But the next game that we really want to talk about with them, well, there's two of them. First, they created a game called Wipeout. This was very similar. It was a copy, in a way, of Atari slash Key's Elimination. It had the same basic gameplay as Elimination, and it came out after Elimination. But they added what they called a frustration bumper in the middle of the play area. So there was this kind of cross-shaped bumper right in the middle of the play area. And if the ball hit that, it would ricochet off of that rather than passing through to the other side. This made the elimination-style gameplay even more unpredictable and made it even more challenging to track the ball because you had way more surfaces that it could ricochet off of. It is exactly like elimination, but all you have is this plus in the center that the center of that plus, whenever the ball gets near it, weird things happen. (laughs) Exactly. So it just makes that slightly more interesting. Now, Ramtech is a very small company. I mean, it's still a startup. It was founded in 1971. This is just two to three years later. 
their first games were 73 and then Wipeout was early 74. They don't have a hugely robust manufacturing operation. And even more importantly, because they're not a coin-op company, they also don't have a robust distribution network in coin-op. So they actually license the game. They release it themselves as Wipeout, but they also provide a license to Midway the giant Bally subsidiary in Chicago, to make the game as well. And so they released the game as Leader. Leader's the exact same game, it's just that it's in a Midway cabinet instead of a Ramtech cabinet. But Wipeout came first, and then Leader was the licensed version. We've gone from basic, get the ball in the goal, get the ball in the basket, cause your opponent to miss the ball to score a point gameplay of Pong, Hockey, Soccer. Now we've moved it on a little bit to this multiplayer competition where your goal is essentially to destroy the other player, so to speak, make them lose all their lives with an increasing level of sophistication by adding the cross-shaped bumper in the middle. The next step is to take this single player and to create a game that really has much more action happening on the screen. Something much more dynamic. I mean, these games have the ball bouncing around a lot, but something that feels even quicker paced and something that places the man against the machine. The person who makes this next leap is another Ramtech person by the name of Hal Ivey. Hal Ivey, who is someone I've interviewed, was an Air Force person stationed at the satellite test facility on Onizuka Air Force Station which was right by Sunnyvale, California, where all of this stuff was happening. He was an engineer. He specialized in telemetry systems. So it's the same kind of thing, the idea of representing and tracking objects, which is what all of this stuff is doing. That was his specialty. So because he was also at the heart of where this was all happening in Silicon Valley, he saw computer space in 1972. Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney's very first video game released through Nutting Associates, and became very interested in the technology. Then, of course, he also saw Pong when Pong came out. Here was something that he looked at and was like, you know, I think I can make one of these too. So that's what he did, just all by himself in his two-bedroom apartment. He got the parts together and created a Pong clone of his own, and then looked for someone to sell it to. So he was naturally drawn to Ramtech because Ramtech was the other Sunnyvale company that was doing this kind of thing. Ramtech was very impressed with his engineering ability and gave him $2,000 for his Pong clone design. Now, they never released it. This thing was never released by the company, but they paid him for the design probably as much as anything to make sure that he didn't go sell it to somebody else and then offered him a job. So he took a part-time job with the company. He was still in the Air Force at this point. But on nights and weekends, he started designing his second video game after his Pong prototype. Like I said, this time, according to Ivy himself, whom I interviewed, his goal was to create a game with a dynamic play field and lots of action. He created a one-player game where there's a paddle at the bottom of the screen that you control, move back and forth, just like you've moved all the paddles in all these other games. There's a ball that comes in from the top for you to bounce, and then there are these other dots filling almost the entire screen. 
So your job is to bounce that ball off of that paddle to connect with those other dots and make them disappear. That sounds familiar. Yes. And he called this game Clean Sweep. If you're thinking it sounds a lot like Breakout, that is where this story is eventually going. Now, there is one thing that is very different about Clean Sweep from Breakout, and that is there is no ricochet off of the objects you are eliminating. So these circles, dots, balls, whatever you want to call them, fill basically the entire play field. And as you bounce the ball off, the ball will make every single dot that it hits in a line disappear. It doesn't ricochet off of anything. The only thing it ricochets off of is your paddle. But this created a very dynamic single-player game where there's a lot of action going on, which is exactly the effect Ivy wanted to create. You're trying to get the ball to hit every single space on the screen. Exactly. There are a couple of interesting other things about this game as well, technically. You'll notice if you look at the game, instead of having the traditional rectangular flat paddle of all the other ball and paddle games, this one has a paddle that is slightly curved. It looks a little more like, say, a flying saucer or something rather than a flat paddle, right? It looks more like a dome to me, but that, yeah. A dome. That's a good way to, to say it. Ivy did that. And again, you know, he told this to me when I interviewed him. Ivy did that because he wanted to make it very clear what the angles were. All of these games, going back to Pong, used a segmented paddle where if the ball hit a certain part of a paddle, its vector would be different depending on which part it hit. But Ivy really wanted to make that clear visually as well. So that's why he wanted a curved paddle. But to achieve that, he actually had to create a real graphical element to create that curved paddle. So Clean Sweep was one of the earliest games that actually had ROM memory on the board in order to store that image of the paddle. Grand Track 10 from Atari also had ROM memory and just beat Clean Sweep to market. So it wasn't quite the first game with ROM memory, but it was one of the very, very first. The other thing is that in order to facilitate those dots disappearing, he also incorporated RAM into the game to keep track of what's going on on the screen. As far as I know, it was the very first video game, coin-operated video game, to incorporate RAM memory on the board. He needed a little bit more of an advanced hardware to do what he's doing here, though it's still a relatively simple setup to get a pretty fun effect. And Clean Sweep was indeed a hit. Now, a hit in 1974, a year that, as we've talked about, was a down year after the massive successes of Pong the year before, a hit in 1974 doesn't look as impressive compared to a hit in 1972 or 1982, but it sold about 3,500 units. And the big thing is that how you know it is a success, and uh, we have this from a deposition that Charles McEwen gave in a court case, is that the game re-entered production twice. So those 3,500 units, which again is a number we have directly from McEwen that he gave under oath, so that should be an accurate figure. Those 3,500 units came in three production runs. It is very rare to return to a coin-op game once you have taken it off the production line, because coin-op is novelty, coin-op is about the new, and the public's always looking for the next new thing. By the time your run is done, there's no point in returning to the well. The public wants the next thing. 
So the fact that they had to put it back into production two times, as McEwen said, shows that this concept was very popular, far more popular than you can tell just from the relatively modest unit total of 3,500. Like you said, it's just rare to have it go back in production, but to do it twice speaks volumes. Exactly. So how Ivy was responsible for this next big innovation here, and then the other innovation that was kind of similar to what Ivy was doing that also happened in 1974 was bringing pinball into the ball and paddle genre. How Ivy did that a little bit in the sense that he put objects on the screen that you were meant to collide with, which is very much what pinball's all about. But as I said, there was no ricochet, there was no resistance. It's just you're trying to hit every segment of that screen with your paddle. Now, whether Clean Sweep was the inspiration or companies were just like, you know, we should do pinball next to try to extend this ball and paddle thing, I don't know. But there were three games that came out near the end of the year that incorporated a pinball element. And the first of those came from Atari. It was the last significant ball and paddle game that Atari released during the rise and fall of Pong. Obviously, we're going to get to a very significant ball and paddle game they released later. But I'm just talking about in this 1973-1974 Pong boom bust period. That was the game Pin Pong, two words that they released in about October of 1974. So Elimination from Atari comes out in like September, October 1973. Clean Sweep from Ramtech comes out in April 1974. Pinpong from Atari comes out in October 1974. So this market's evolving rapidly. This is all happening in a very short period of time, as we've talked about before in our episode on the Pong boom and bust. Pinpong really just tries to be a primitive form of a pinball machine. It's very simple graphics again, but it has targets on the screen, some of which that when you hit, they disappear, others of which you can hit multiple times to generate points. Your job is to rack up points just like in a pinball game. There's also uh, point elements on the screen that says, you know, hit this target, get this many points, etc. That's done by screen overlay, because that's more than the uh, display hardware of the time could handle. Pinpong is kind of this next example of what do we do with ball and paddle games next. Because pinball tables were pretty garish at the time, and the cabinet was trying to replicate a pinball playfield of the time period. This thing's in yellow 1960 psychedelic writing. I know. It's 1974. This is the times. This is the times. That's what a lot of pinball playfields were like at the time. I don't know anything about the development of pin pong. I don't know who did it. Obviously, it's meant to be a ping pong game. I have to think that they must have taken some inspiration from some of what Ramtech was doing, because it does have that cross-shaped target in the middle, which of course is something that Ramtech pioneered on its Wipeout game. It has elements along the sides that disappear when you hit them, those 100-point blocks on the sides. There's a decent chance that they got the idea for all of that from Clean Sweep, and, and they may not have. I mean, I, I don't know that. I have to think that they were probably taking some inspiration from what Ramtech was doing and coming up with this. It's becoming clear that the most interesting way to keep the ball and paddle genre going is to have a lot of things for you to bounce your ball off of. 
It takes elements from all of it. You have that weird cross thing in the center that just every time the ball goes near it, something weird happens. Sometimes it orbits it. Uh Sometimes it just goes off in a different angle. Sometimes nothing happens. It's all random. We don't know. Then we have the two big diamonds at the top that sort of act like pinball bumpers. Bumpers. Yep. You get close to it. It hits it, kicks it away. You get some points. It's really, really primitive. The paddles don't have any catch state. It just sort of goes from one state to the other. And sometimes when the ball's really, it looks like the ball's already out, but the paddle comes up past it and it's just sort of like, oh, we we hit it. We really hit it. Honest. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit funky. And to my knowledge, it doesn't sell particularly well. Because after all, there's real pinball in the arcades. And at this point in time, video game systems just can't simulate that excellent tactile feel of pinball in any convincing way. And so it's someone's going to come to the arcade to play a pinball-like game. They're just going to play pinball. They're not going to play pinpong. So TV pinpong, for those reasons, wasn't really a success, but this was kind of the next stage of trying to figure out something interesting to do with ball and paddle games. And kind of people were figuring out this idea from Clean Sweep that it's kind of fun maybe to clear the screen of targets, but then they also want to combine this pinball element a little bit of having more ricocheting action on the playfield. Pinpong is an example of that. But Ramtech is also continuing in this direction, and they're working on their own pseudo-pinball game called Knockout. Now, you're not going to find Knockout if you look online, because they never actually released it. The only reason we know that they were working on this thing is they did announce it in the trades, that it was something they were working on that was going to come out, but it never did. However, thanks to that same Charles McEwen deposition that I talked about earlier, we do know that they licensed. He doesn't mention Knockout by name, but he describes how they licensed a game to Midway that they did not release themselves called TV Flipper. So I presume TV Flipper was an evolution of Knockout, since that was the game that ultimately released. Now, you're not going to find TV Flipper, unfortunately, online either. Like I said, I don't think these pinball-style games really did that well. So my guess is Midway didn't have a big production run and they just haven't survived. However, there is another game that, from the looks of it, from just comparing the flyers and whatnot, looks to be basically the exact same game. And that is a game by a new entrant in the field here called Exidy that is named TV Pinball. So Exidy is caught up in this exact same web, this Silicon Valley nexus where Atari and Ramtech are, because Exidy is actually founded by one Mr. Pete Kaufman, whom I mentioned earlier, who was one of the very first Ramtech executives to discover Pong. Ramtech was in the video game business because they figured it could fund their primary business, but McEwen's first love was still the graphics display terminals. The video games were a sideline. Pete Kaufman, however, saw video games as the future of entertainment and decided that he really wanted to be in this business for real, not just as a sideline. 
So he actually left Ramtech in late 1973 and established his own company, Exidy, which was a portmanteau, a combination of the words excellence in dynamics, X-I-D. He took personnel from Ramtech when he founded the company. Then, in fact, even a little later on, not at this point, but in 1975, he even poaches Hal Ivey away from Ramtech. So there was a lot of sharing of people and knowledge between these two companies. So the fact that TV Pinball and TV Flipper are so similar looking, I assume that Exidy got some kind of advanced notice, kind of knew that this game was coming from Ramtech and made their own copy version of it. I don't know exactly what the story is here. But they're so similar that there has to be something going on. TV Pinball takes a slightly different approach from Pin Pong because it's not trying to replicate in a very primitive way a pinball table playfield like Pin Pong is. Instead, it's really more of an evolution of the clean sweep concept. But now we're combining clean sweep with ricochets. So just like Clean Sweep, you have objects all through the middle of the screen. You don't have as many as in Clean Sweep. There are gaps between them. But you once again have targets arrayed in the middle of the screen. And you once again have a paddle at the bottom of the screen, and you want to knock the ball off the paddle and hit these objects to get points. However, this time not only do the objects disappear, but your ball does ricochet off of them when they do. Then in addition to that, you have the objects arrayed around the edge of the screen as well. And those objects do not disappear, but you can hit them as well and they ricochet off to get additional points. It's kind of an evolution of the clean sweep idea. I think you can see if you look at the one video I've been able to find of it, which isn't even in the original cabinet, but it's somebody who restored a TV pinball board and is playing it through an old CRT television. It's interesting. It, you got it all bouncing off of the side, the top, and the very small array of dots. You don't have the pinball features anymore where you're trying to shoot a ball and then keep it up there like the previous game. This is very much more in the line of a primitive version of Breakout or Arkanoid. Absolutely. Certainly, in a way, an evolution of the clean sweep concept as well. So we're inching towards that. But then, of course, these games are coming out at the end of 1974. 1974 is the year, as we've talked about in our Pong episode, that the Pong market just tanks. The ball and paddle market just tanks. Everyone's sick of them. The market's oversaturated. These newer concepts aren't really catching on, and so everybody, for the most part, just takes a break at this point. There are a couple of really insignificant companies and some cocktail table companies that release ball and paddle games in 1975, but the big companies, the Ataris and Midways, and even the smaller specialized companies like the Ramtex and the Exides, they stay away from this in 1975. Ball and paddle is dead. But the engineers at Atari aren't completely ready to give up on ball and paddle games just yet. I have to imagine the reason for that, though this is speculation on my part, is that the nice thing about ball and paddle games is you can create a pretty decent amount of fun for cheap. You don't need fancy advanced graphical elements. 
You don't need super-duper advanced physics. You don't need highly specialized control schemes. You can get a lot of gameplay value out of a rectangular paddle, a square ball, some targets of whatever shape, a black and white monitor, some TTL hardware, and a dial, the so-called paddle controller. So they're really cost-effective games. If you can get a hit with a ball and paddle game, you're going to really roll in the dough because you can sell that for the same price as you're selling, or a similar price, as you're selling some of your more advanced games, but your profit margin is probably going to be a lot higher because the technology is simpler. It's a genre that continues to have an appeal even after that first boom and bust cycle, I think in part because it is possible for it to be both simple and addictive if you can hit the right formula, the right balance. The Atari people aren't willing to give up on it quite yet. They're thinking about new ways to carry this forward. They're really thinking in terms of improvements to clean sweep. We know this because I took a trip to the Strong, taken a couple of trips, and looked through their archive of Atari coin-op documents. We have some product schedules and engineering reports that give some tantalizing clues as to the progress of how this game came about. And a lot of these findings were summarized by Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, in his blog post called A Breakout Story that we will put in the show notes. It's solely authored by him, and he did a lot of the research. It also made use of some of the research I did. I kind of helped out on constructing some of this timeline. But we were able to kind of come up with a timeline of how Breakout came to be. The way Atari worked at the time, they still had a relatively small engineering department, The way they would often come up with game ideas is they would go away and have brainstorming sessions. They would have off-site brainstorming sessions where everyone was allowed to pitch ideas, not just the engineers, but if there were other people there, cabinet designers, industrial designers, artists, executives, whatever, anyone could pitch a game idea. These pitches would sometimes just be very simple, you know, just a few words or an elevator pitch kind of thing to kind of start fleshing out an idea. And sometimes if a person was feeling really strongly about an idea, they might come in with a full storyboard or something like that. In the case of Breakout, we know that they held a brainstorming session in January 1975 because we have a memo from Steve Bristow, who was the head of engineering at the time summarizing this January 14th, 1975 meeting. It gives a list of the games that they had brainstormed at the session, and there are two entries here that are particularly relevant on this document. One is a game that is called Bricks. There's no description or anything. It's just called on there Bricks. This may be related, it may not be related, but since the conceit of Breakout ends up being that these are bricks, it's very possible that it has something to do with what eventually becomes Breakout. But the far more interesting entry, and this is a direct quote, Ethan includes this direct quote in his blog post, as I said, you know, it's a document that I viewed at the Strong. This entry says, clean sweep, parenthesis, 
with the addition of the fact that the areas you knock out create a completely closed field at the start of the game. Now that sounds an awful lot like Atari looked at Clean Sweep, thought that was kind of fun, but we could make it better by having the objects you're knocking out create a solid closed field at the start of the game, which is exactly what Breakout does. I mean, Breakout's only on a small portion of the screen at the very top, but that is exactly what Breakout does. This document pretty, I mean, you know, we don't have interviews from the engineers that were there, but this document pretty conclusively shows, as conclusively as we can get at any rate, that Clean Sweep was indeed the inspiration for Breakout. I mean, you can kind of guess that already just by looking at Clean Sweep's gameplay and looking at Breakout's gameplay. But this seems to be the documentary evidence that this is, in fact, true. Instead of being, we think this is highly likely, we have it in black and white. There is no equivocations here. Exactly. We do know from other memos, and these memos are incomplete, so it's not like we have a complete picture of everything. It's just, it's scattered whatever happened to to be saved by somebody. Also discovered another memo from the very next month, February the 12th, 1975, which again shows a list of projects in progress. No descriptions or anything. It's just projects in progress. And at that time, there's a project called Brick Game that is shown as being under development by an engineer by the name of Dave Dean, an engineer that I have no familiarity with, you know, other than he's just a name on a page. He's not an engineer that I know anything about. We don't know for sure if this Brick Game is their very first attempt to do Breakout because we don't have enough information. But there's a decent chance it is, since, as I said, Breakout is very much a brick game. Though this could be a separate game, and the clean sweep idea could be completely unrelated to brick game. I want to be very clear on that. There's a little speculation here. Now, according to Steve Bristow and Nolan Bushnell, the idea that became Breakout, which is presumably this clean sweep with the addition of the fact that the areas you knock out create a completely closed field at the start of the game, was a game that Bristow and Bushnell thought showed a lot of promise, but that the engineers just did not want to work on. Ball and paddle games were considered dead at this point, you know, that we'd had the collapse of the Pong market. They really wanted this to be made, but nobody wanted to do it. The solution came through an obnoxious young tech that basically nobody at the company liked by the name of Steve Jobs. And yes, we mean that Steve Jobs. Yes. So this story has been told in a few different places by a few different people, but the version that I choose to believe is the one that I was told by Joe Keenan, who was the president of Atari at the time. The reason I believe Keenan's version is he has not really been interviewed about this very much. So his version was, in a sense, less tainted. The breakout story, the story of Jobs and Wozniak doing breakout, is a well-known story. Not trying to claim I'm breaking any fantastic news there. But Bushnell is often taking credit for getting him involved in the making of the game. 
But I kind of believe Keenan's version more because it makes a lot of sense. So the way Joe Keenan tells it, who, as I said at the time, was president of Atari, Steve Jobs came into his office and basically said, hey, I, there's this guru I want to go see up in Oregon, because he would often go back to the area around Reed, Oregon, where there were some hippies and such that he had hung around with for some time. I need some money to get up there. Is there any way I can do any extra jobs to get the money? The reason I think he probably asked about this is, funnily enough, this was actually his second stint at Atari. He was originally hired in 1974 as a technician and then decided that he wanted to go on a spiritual retreat to India. Al Alcorn, who was heading engineering at Atari, kind of as a way to help him out, said, okay, fine, we have a problem with one of our games in Germany. So we'll pay for your ticket as far as Germany if you'll implement the fix for this problem for us. Now, Jobs is not a particularly accomplished guy. He's given the fix. All he has to do is follow instructions. You know, from there, you're on your own, but we'll get you as far as Germany if you take care of that for us. So he's like, sure. So they did that deal. So that's probably why he came again. I mean, this travel is nowhere near as dramatic as going to India. He went to India. He had some interesting times there. Came back to the States, did some primal scream therapy for 12 weeks. That's a thing. And then rejoined Atari in early 1975, got his old job back as a tech. Going to Oregon is not nearly as dramatic as going to India, but I have to imagine that part of the reason, and this is why this story kind of makes sense too, is that it makes sense that if Atari helped him with some travel by giving him some extra work before, maybe they can do something for him again. So he comes to Joe Keenan and says, yeah, is there some extra work I can do for some extra money so I can go see this guru? He's like, okay, sure. Because it just so happens that Bushnell had shown him, because Bushnell had this game kind of drawn up on a whiteboard of his, and he had shown it to Keenan like the day before or, or very recently and had lamented the fact that nobody wanted to do the game. According to Keenan, he's the one that had the idea, rather than Bushnell, of maybe having Jobs take a crack at this game. So he took him over to Bushnell's office, and they showed him the mock-up of the game and all of this stuff and asked if he'd do it. And they also said that if you're able to reduce the chip count, we'll give you a bonus for basically cutting the cost of the game by reducing the number of chips needed in it. He was like, sure, that sounds good. So uh, he agreed to do the game. Now, Steve Jobs knew a little bit about technology, but he was not that accomplished. The Atari folks knew that. I mean, he was a technician at the company. He was not an engineer. What the technicians would do is they would tweak the hardware. Because remember, at this time, microprocessors are just starting to come in. But most of the games still at this time in uh, 1975, well, really all the games in 75, because it's only later in the year that the first microprocessor games come out. And we're talking about probably the early part of 1975 here, not too long after that January brainstorming meeting. Microprocessors were not used. There was no software in these games. So when you're fine-tuning a game in software, you can just change values in a table. If you want the car to go a little faster, you just change that value in the table or wherever you've stored it within your game code, and blip, bleep, bloop, your car goes faster. Well, you can't do that. With TTL hardware, it's all in hardware. There's nothing to program. So if you decide, actually, we need this car to go a little faster, you have two options. You can recreate the entire board again from scratch, 
which seems kind of inefficient to make one little tweak. Or you can just take that little part of the hardware you need to change and solder some kind of bridge on there that contains, that changes that hardware in whatever way you need to change it to make it do what you want. So that's what a technician like Steve Jobs primarily did. As the engineer was working on the game and testing the game and tweaking the game, he'd be like, oh, we need a little bit of this here, we need a little bit of that there. He'd make notes of that on the schematic, hand the schematic off to his technician. Everyone had a technician paired with them. And then the technician would do those tiny little tweaks. So you had to know a little bit about what a PC board looked like, and you had to be comfortable with a soldering iron, but you didn't have to have a lot of great engineering skill or understanding, because you're basically just following the instructions that your engineer is giving you for soldering this stuff together. They knew that he wasn't much of an engineer, but they did also know that he was friends with Steve Wozniak, and they knew Steve Wozniak was an amazing engineer, because Woz would come by and visit Jobs sometimes at Atari, and one time when he came, Woz had actually created his own Pong game just for the fun of it once. He brought that in to show the Atari folks one time, and Al Alcorn was so impressed by his engineering that he offered him a job on the spot, but Wozniak did not want to work for a startup. He was at HP designing calculator circuits, and that was his dream job, and he was never going to leave. He didn't end up working at Atari, but they knew that Steve knew him. And according to Bushnell, and I believe this, just because people have said that Wozniak would hang around the building sometimes. So even though Bushnell sometimes embellishes, I think this is probably true. They figured that if they were giving the job to Jobs, that he was probably going to bring in Wozniak to do it for him. The basic concept of this game was designed in this brainstorming session and following it. We don't know exactly who did it. Bristow and Bushnell have taken credit for coming up with the basic design themselves. It's possible other engineers did it. Then was this Bricks game in any way related to it? I don't know. It's muddled. But Jobs did not design the game. The layout of the game, the objective of the game, the fact that you have a paddle at the bottom and that you knock out the bricks and it ricochets and all of that, that was designed already. But Jobs gave that to Wozniak, and Wozniak actually implemented this probably sometime between January and March 1975. For more information on why we think the timeline is the way it is, you can uh, look at uh, Ethan's blog post, which we'll put in the show notes. Now, as I said, Jobs had to go see a guru, and he wasn't going to get paid until this job was done. So he actually lied to Wozniak and told them that they had four days to complete this project. Now, Atari had not given them a four-day deadline. They didn't care. But Jobs was specifically trying to get his money so that he could go up north. So he needed it done. So they spent four days. They stayed up four days straight. Wozniak designed this thing, and while it was being debugged, he'd go play Grand Track 10, because Wozniak was a big arcade rat. The reason he would come by Atari so often is Atari had a game room with games on free play, so Jobs would bring him in and he could play all the games for free. So he alternated between working on the game and playing Grand Track 10, and over four days, they completed this thing. They both got mono. They were both exhausted and ill at the end of it, but they got it done. They removed a bunch of chips. They got their big bonus, very famously, has been told in other sources. Jobs didn't tell Waz about the bonus and held that back. 
because they were given a development fee and then on top of that, the bonus. So Jobs split the development fee 50-50 with Waz, but didn't tell him about the chip removing bonus and actually kept all of that money. Waz found out later when he read a profile in a TWA airplane magazine on an airplane about Bushnell and Atari that told that story and kind of hurt his feelings a little bit. I imagine so. This was years later after they founded Apple and everything. So yeah, that's a bit of a thing, but they got it done and they got paid. Now, the problem was it was unusable. A lot of the common tellings of the story are that it was unusual because Waz was such a mad genius that he created a design that other engineers couldn't understand so it couldn't be replicated for mass production. That seems to be embellished and not true. The problem was that Waz was kind of an atypical, self-taught, quirky engineer, a brilliant engineer, but didn't do things in a standard way. That much was true. But the problem was it turned out that there were some logic errors in what he did, and it, it didn't actually quite work properly the way it was supposed to, because they got it down from like 100 chips to like 40. There's bound to be some bugs if you're staying up four days straight and going a little crazy trying to get this thing done in four days. There's bound to be bugs. You don't have time for QA. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is he cheated a little bit because he only had the most basic of parameters. Like, for instance, for the score, he used an LED readout instead of including the score within the game itself. Well, there's no way Atari was ever going to use an LED readout. He did that to save chips, but that just wasn't going to work in the arcade environment. So it turns out that the design that Wozniak and Jobs made was not actually used. It ended up going through a lot of different hands. Like I said, it could be that this brick game is the game. However, there's also another game that shows up eventually called Breakthrough in the documents that shows up in an internal memo in July 1975. The interesting thing is Breakthrough is almost certainly Breakout because Steve Wozniak actually, in April, in the newsletter of the Homebrew Computer Club, which he was a member of, talks about some of the things that he has done, and he mentions that he created a video game called Breakthrough. So the fact that there's a breakthrough game showing up in Atari's internal memos, and Wozniak claims publicly in a newsletter, this is the kind of detective work you have to do in history sometimes, called Breakthrough that he's bragging as having made, makes it pretty darn likely that Breakthrough is Breakout. So this internal memo in July 1975, July 15th to be exact, says the Breakthrough is ready for a location test at this time, which is that final thing you tend to do to see if the game's going to earn well before you actually put it into production. Then we don't hear anything about it again until January of 1976. We don't know why they sat on it. There are a couple of things that happened in here that could have influenced this. One thing, like I said, is Wozniak's prototype was not usable. They actually gave it to another engineer named Gary Waters to fix it. He added a two-player mode, which wasn't in the original. He fixed it so the score was not on a separate LED readout. And he also fixed the bugs, the logic errors that were in Waz's version. And in doing so, he used Atari's standard hardware procedures. And so all those chip savings that Wozniak generated didn't end up making it into the final product. So it could have partially taken so long because 
it just took a while for Waters to work out all the kinks and to figure out what had happened and fix it. I don't know. The other thing that's very interesting is that in this period in 1975, the company Fun Games comes into existence. We talked about Fun Games. We did that a couple of times, but most recently in our most recent Errors and Corrections episode where I gave a more detailed look at the Fun Games company. Just as a brief refresher, this was a group of ex-Atari people that had kind of grown disillusioned by Atari during the period when they were having their financial difficulties and decided to strike out on their own. While the main marketing people and engineers didn't do this, some of the technicians that they hired away from Atari stole some Atari prototypes and took those with them to fun games to kind of get the company started, which led to lawsuits and all sorts of ugliness. But the interesting thing is one of the games that they release at Fun Games, they release a ball and paddle compilation called Take 5, which took some of the common ball and paddle variants out there and put them in one cabinet. And then a little later in the year, released a second one called Take 7, which had the same five games from the original, but added two more. And one of those was a game called Bust Out. We don't have any game footage of this. You won't find that. But we do have a flyer for the game for Take 7 that shows pictures, not screenshots, but mock-ups of the various games. And Bust Out is Breakout, except turned on its side. It's horizontal instead of vertical. So Bust Out came out before Breakout. But since Fun Games stole all of their stuff from Atari, it's clear that they got a prototype of the in-progress breakthrough game, breakout game, and released a version. So I don't know if they decided to sit on it as well because that had happened. We don't know. All we know is it sat around for a long time until finally in early 1976, it comes out. Of course, it ends up being a massive hit. Sells over 10,000 units. I've seen various sales figures ranging from 11 to 15,000. Don't know exactly which is the most accurate, but it was definitely more than 10. We know that much. Which was a mammoth hit in 1976 terms. It was just really, really fun. Because it recaptured some of that magic of following that bouncing ball and fast play action because, you know, you had the row of bricks at the top and you would hit it up there and bounce the ball off the bricks, which would disappear. But then the ball would also speed up over time, which made it more challenging, really got the adrenaline pumping. Once you broke through to the very top row of bricks, your paddle would also shrink, making the game more challenging. There was just something satisfying about making those bricks disappear, especially if you were able to get the ball wedged up to the top of the screen because there was a gap between the bricks and the very top of the screen, and you could get the ball up there and it would get trapped up there for a while and it would just keep bouncing and destroying more and more bricks before it finally came back down. Of course, this was a game that was based on the pinball concept of lives as well. So, you know, you got like three plays or whatever. It was three plays. So, you know, there were consequences. You had to keep the ball bouncing or your game would be over. This was kind of that one of those first hints that it was really going to be those big adrenaline games that were going to be the big successful games and not necessarily some of the more staid target shooting and driving games that had come out in previous times, which required some skill, but didn't necessarily get the blood pumping in the same way as a fast action game like this. Breakout represents a new height for the ball and paddle genre, something that was left for dead after the collapse of the Pong market 
1974. In part two of our look at the evolution of the ball and paddle genre, we will see how Breakout creates a worldwide phenomenon after it goes to Japan, and then the further ways that ball and paddle games continued to evolve in the 1980s. I was wondering if you would have to make this part two or not. (laughs) Oh yeah, I I figured I probably would. I never know for sure until I start talking and don't stop. (laughs) Well, we will see you in part two on January 15th, 2024. Can't believe I'm saying that. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Why is it 2024 now? I didn't get a memo. I didn't give consent. Why is this so weird being in 2024?